0: Today's episode is presented by Lloyds Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK.
1: Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. You're listening to the number one EU news and politics podcast. I'm your host Ryan Heath, the author of Politico's Brussels Playbook column. We've got a jam-packed episode this week, so we're going to skip the long introduction and I'll just set the scene by saying that our main guest this week is Daniel Ek, the CEO of Spotify. I interviewed him at the rather grand setting of the Concert Noble building in Brussels. It's a huge hall with massive chandeliers, and he was in town to talk to a group of commissioners about what they can do better in the digital sphere. Before we speak to Daniel, I'm joined by Joanna Pluczynska, one of Politico's top reporters. Welcome, Joanna. Thank you. We've dragged her into the podcast studio because she spent Tuesday night stalking first Daniel Eck, and then later the Polish Prime Minister Morawiecki, who was in town for dinner with Jean-Claude Juncker. Let's start with that dinner.
2: Well, the Polish Prime Minister kind of had an opportunity to present a new Poland to the European Commission.
1: Did he succeed?
2: Well, they said they had a friendly dinner with Jean-Claude Juncker, but how much actually changed in Poland's position on the most controversial issues, which is of course the rule of law, is yet to be seen. After the dinner, Morawiecki made it quite clear that, in fact, very little has changed, that they still believe in the law reforms that they've carried through, and that Morawiecki plans to defend them. But he's going to explain them in a clearer way so that Mm Juncker better understands why Poland needs to do this.
1: And Juncker was playing good cop in this scenario. Maybe it's Donald Tusky needs to have a better explanation for. That's the European Council president who really lit up on a Polish interview and on Twitter in the last 24 hours.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he had opinions basically saying that Poland could eventually lead to a a exit of some sort, that it could leave the European Union um, and that the current government is really headed on a a bad path. And that's despite the government reshuffle that happened on Tuesday morning and the clear change that this government is trying to bring through right now. So Tusk is clearly very skeptical. Despite Morawiecki being the new prime minister, he still thinks law and justice is no good.
1: Well, someone else who was on a PR campaign was Daniel Eck. and I think that he really came to Brussels with a message that I'm a CEO who's different, I'm the good tech CEO don't come chasing me with regulation. We're gonna hear from him later in the podcast, but sitting in the audience, what was your impression? Did he get away with that message?
2: I think he really wanted to show that Europe was doing a good job. He wanted to play the good guy. He wanted to show that he cares about artists. He cares about creative communities. He wants music to thrive. He's not some evil Google, Facebook, Twitter guy trying to steal all of our personal data that he is really trying to create a way to sustainably be creative online. But some of the things that he had to say were not very specific on this topic, and I think he veered away from trying to comment in too much detail on European politics or to be overtly critical. The one thing that he did say that was interesting from a digital perspective was that European regulators are not moving fast enough on innovating and on following some of the biggest technological changes.
1: Absolutely. And I think he struck me as someone who was quite personally open. I mean, I think listeners will hear that he's a very personable guy, but he didn't really want to get into details. I would ask about what's a fair rate of tax to pay. You know, he would say we should pay our fair share, but not get into details there. He was much more of a fan of self-regulation rather than heavy-handed regulation. And he was really trying to keep it on the up and up.
2: One thing I did notice was that he was trying to suck up a bit to uh, Competition Commissioner Margaret Vesteyer, and that kind of shows some of the history that Spotify has with trying to convince EU regulators to play on their side. Last year, there was some talk about Spotify filing a legal complaint with authorities against Apple for abusing their market power. That ended up falling through. It never came to fruition, but uh, it's clear that Spotify is still trying to kind of stay in Margaret Besteyer's good books and ensure that she has their back.
1: Well, there you go. Joanna, thanks for joining us. And now it's time to hear from Daniel himself, the CEO of Spotify. Let's dive straight into it, Daniel. How can Europe create more people like you? The billionaire or the soon-to-be-billionaire internet entrepreneur who creates jobs and changes or creates markets?
3: Well... Um, I mean, uh, my view is like Europe has made tremendous progress just over the last 10 years. Earlier today, I was talking to someone about the Collison brothers who are Irish and ended up setting up a very, now very famous uh, payment company called Stripe, feeling that they had to move to San Francisco. So the question that came from an Irish gentleman was obviously, would it be possible for them and what has changed for them to start that business in Europe today. And I think there's been a tremendous amount that have changed. So the first thing is you have to have the right foundations for that kind of success. And 10 years ago, the truth was that there was an enormous capital advantage if you were in Silicon Valley versus Europe. I fundamentally think that's changed now. Like, I am not seeing that early stage companies are struggling to the same degree as they did before to find access to capital. There's plenty of venture capital companies around. There's plenty of seed investors around. And those seed investors and venture capitalists have experience because they've now been doing this for a long period of time and seen some success, can share experiences, share advice. There's other entrepreneurs that are out there. The second thing, once you move past the foundational thing, and I think this is probably the thing that is the most immaterial thing, but the most valuable thing comes back to not just access to skill, but access to experience Mm. as you're growing. Because the reality and the untold story about running a startup is every single thing that you're doing is life or death. Every single person you're hiring is, if you're wrong, your company will be dead a year from now. So it's critical to get that right piece of initial people invested into your business, building that initial team, it always stops and ends with the people. And the one aspect that Silicon Valley still have a leg up, I think on most of the world, is in having that experience. Because they simply have many, many more decades of experience. So the software companies drew that experience from the semiconductor companies, and this now the internet companies drew it from the software companies, and the services company drew it from the internet companies. So It's just been a much greater level of a talent bench that have that experience. Yep. And, and my view is that the difference isn't just one or two X, it's like 50 X having that mm-hmm. experience. But Europe is finally getting that. Yep. Tons of new startups being formed. The foundational aspects are there. There are functioning markets. We're seeing even fintech companies that you would think would be, by Europe's nature, be limited to one geography. In fact, scaling into many, many different geographies and doing so successfully. So I think there's a lot of positive there. Do you think the digital single market is a bit of a myth or do you really see it coming
1: together? And do you find it a useful tool for your business?
3: I actually do find it very useful. I think when you look at the world today, there's three macro trends. Um, you have one, um, globalization, like more and more companies are going global by nature. And two, there's obviously machine learning implicating every single industry. And and thirdly, it's automation, which is probably less so implicating. Mm-hmm. But globalization is a real thing. And I think by having a digital single market, it enables... European competitors like mine like we come from Stockholm Sweden the Sweden was too small of a market for us That just wouldn't happen Whereas if you start a company in the US you have access to population of 300 million from the get-go so having easy ways for people to be able to scale up those companies without Having to deal with tricky regulatory things is really important. So I think the spirit is the right thing and it's very helpful for us
1: now You're a rare beast in another way, which is that you're a CEO who's come to Brussels and instead of jumping immediately back onto a plane or a train, you've come up here to expose yourself to scrutiny for an hour. Tell us a little bit about what makes you want to have that sort of conversation and what conversation did you have with all of those European commissioners today?
3: Well, I think that it's incredibly important you know, with the level of success that we have had that there's also a ton of responsibility to pay that forward. One of the things that Silicon Valley does greatly so is even among rival companies, you see a culture in which they teach each other about what it is about being a leader. And I think... The issues that we're dealing with used to be about just the technology sector alone. I think the technology sector is now the entire thing. So I think it's really important for people like myself to be open, be transparent and putting myself out there and talking about what we believe in the world because we want a fair world. And so much of the conversation I've had in Brussels have been about that. How do we create a fairer marketplace? How do we create the next Spotify? And what are the foundations that needs to happen for that kind of growth?
1: Did you come up with any answers?
3: Uh, No. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Probably less so. But I, I think it's more of the spirit of where we're coming from. And I think that's an important thing, to hear, especially as we're seeing this polarization of, you know, I I clearly think that we're at a place in the world where people are more clearly than ever seeing that technology can be used for good and for bad. And I want to show that we started this company to be a positive force in the world. And that's why I'm here too, is just to get that message across, but also kind of be open and answering questions.
1: And what are some of the characteristics of that? I mean, you obviously see Spotify as a platform for creativity. You know, it's not just for generic information. There's a specific creative element to it. I mean, we have big questions now driven by automation, driven by globalization. Mm. You see it in the election results as well, about are we creating enough middle-class jobs to have sustainable societies? Are companies paying enough taxes? What are some of the characteristics that you think makes Spotify a little bit different to just the next random app that's being built in Silicon Valley?
3: Well, I think, for one, it's about music, right? So when you think about history and all the big things that have been through history, music has played a very, very important role. So I think it's about carrying the voices of the artists that we have and what they're encountering and seeing in the world, and that's a huge privilege. But it's also something that could be hugely impactful. So as an example, we were part of something called I'm With The Band that we labeled, where essentially we brought a bunch of those voices together, partnered with, when the U.S. decided to do the travel ban, partnering with artists from those countries and partnering them with very famous U.S. artists and creating new songs to talk about that. that those are people, too. Those have real experiences, everyday lives. They're not like people sitting somewhere else and having completely different lives. They have the same dreams, same aspirations as as uh, every other normal person have. Um, I think fundamentally you used to put out a work in the world, an album, like, say once every two or three years. And then you could put that body of work to bed and just do something else for a while or go... Party. To, That's what rock and roll is. Right. Or go touring or do whatever you wanted to do. Um, The reality is we've moved from a transactional model in music to be an engagement model. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was talking to one of the more uh, better performing bands on Spotify. It's a DJ duo called Shane Smokers. And I'd never actually considered it the way they put it, but they said to me, I asked them, why do you put out music every eight weeks? Like, what, what got you to agree to doing it every eight weeks? And they said, well, every week that we don't put out music is a week where we risk losing their attention to someone else. Mm-hmm. And that's the reality today. It's an ongoing relationship between the artist and the fans. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to create that platform where that can flow frictionless, mm-hmm. where those interactions can happen and where the artist can only be really limited by their own art.
1: Now, it's time for a little feature that we have at these events where we have some rapid-fire questions. Okay, sure. So they're fun, and yeah. we just ask you to limit them to a few words or a sentence rather than, than long ones. Um, the audience tends to, to like them. So first up, who do you most admire in the tech world?
3: Most admired in the tech world? Uh, oh, <laughs> that's a hard one. Um, um, I would probably say that I admire um the um, I, I admire people that go against conventional wisdom so i would probably say that's the snapshot guys
1: okay very good i think evan was in town today wasn't he evan coincidentally Eagle. yes mm-hmm. who's your favorite living politician mm. so everyone just says a dead one and then they don't yeah. offend anybody when they do that
3: <laughs> um well I, I had a, a wonderful time uh, sharing a plane once with Dave the Cameron, so I would probably okay. say him. So,
1: Nice. Uh, how many shots of coffee do you take in each cup? Two. Two. What was the last song or artist you added to your playlist?
3: Uh, I added the latest Miguel song, which I can't remember the name of right now. Okay. <laughs> um, how many pieces of IKEA furniture do you own? <laughs> uh, Way too many, because I just bought for my kids a bunch of them. Look Uh, at that, the
1: egalitarian billionaire. That's a very good answer. Um, Have you seen The Square?
3: I have not, no. Okay.
1: That's your favorite ABBA song. Uh,
3: Dancing Queen, yes. Uh
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, very good, very good. Um, Maybe if we think a little bit about what's up next for Spotify. So you are someone that has really been determined to stay grounded, in europe and now you spend time in new york as well and you're going to go public at some point so what happens when you get onto a stock exchange is it about you're no longer a music company it's all about being an experience company with all forms of audio video and so on Mm. is it about the scale i mean what changes when 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 you go public
3: i'm not sure that uh, that much will change Um, and i'm certainly focused on it not being there I, I think at the end of the day like what keeps me to go to work every single day is our mission like mm. i really generally believe that we can get a million people to be able to live off of their art and if we do that the world would look much better mm. that's what i'm how close are you are we what half a million quarter of a million i don't know what the exact numbers would be we're probably still some way off delivering that. But I mean, this isn't something that I need to accomplish in the next year or two. I mean, the truth is, people sometimes look at Spotify as as an overnight success, but it's been anything but.
1: Which tech company will be Europe's next big digital success? Who's a rising star?
3: I think that there's quite a lot, to be honest, to choose from, which is... um, Very exciting. In the fintech space, I think Europe right now is really dominating.
1: What do you think of Margrethe Vestager now that we're talking about competition? Because some tech companies don't like her approach, but you sound sort of to be on a similar line in terms of openness or wanting to grow the pie rather than just fight over the pie?
3: Yeah, I mean, again, I can't comment on uh, sort of any specific things that she said and done, but at the end of the day, we want there to be a fair marketplace and we want there to be more people to compete. We think that ultimately will bring more innovation. It's really simple as that. And from my vantage point of what I've seen, she seems to be all for that.
1: Now, another space that you've moved into recently is podcasts. That's great news for me, because I've got a podcast. And it's called EU Confidential, and I'm trying to get on Spotify. So I thought I might ask you, there's this guy called Daniel. He's going to be on the podcast next Mm -hmm. week. So I think it's a really good one to listen to the next Mm -hmm. episode. But what does a guy have to do to get on to Spotify podcasts?
3: Well, uh, you're talking to the right person, so I'm uh, glad I can help. Um, No, all, all jokes aside, I mean... What, here here's the interesting thing about how podcasts happen on the Spotify platform. It is not something that we actively started thinking, hey, should we start offering podcasts? What happened was people started uploading podcasts already. Uh-huh. Um, they hacked Spotify. They definitely hacked Spotify. And so we started treating it as music. And then our customers started telling us like, no, I actually want to be able to fast forward and I want the 15 second skips and uh, play it. F-. And we were like, w- why? And, and then we realized that this was actually about podcasts. So more recently, we're now trying to incorporate that and we'll support all the RSS fe- feeds and everything else that you're accustomed to doing. And, Again, we wanna leverage the same tools that we're now building for artists and give those to podcasters too, where you can see how well you're doing, what your audience are. Mm -hmm. So if you're an artist today on the Spotify platform, you can actually log in and you can see the age group of your fan base. You can see how many are casual fans, how many are real fans. You can see, you know, if they're skipping at a certain point in time, you can see how they discover that content. It's that level of granularity that we wanna give to all That's
1: extraordinary. I'm not gonna be giving you any news here, but other people won't necessarily know it. But we are on other platforms like SoundCloud and Apple, and you definitely don't get that level of information yeah. from Apple. And so that and that's really frustrating as a creator when you're trying to figure out how do you improve.
3: Yeah. But this is why values are so important. We talked a little bit about that. But you know, my view with Spotify is that our values is deeply rooted in you know, our employees. We believe smart people make better decisions the more data they have available to them. Why wouldn't we extend that to everyone who are participating on the Spotify platform? We're giving them more data because we think they're smart enough to figure out that that means that they in turn sh- should do different things. So you asked me about how you're successful. Well. If we give you data, you will figure out how you become more successful by, for instance, we've had people on the platform who've figured out that they wanted, even if they were a rock musician, they created a a rock sleep track Mm -hmm. because they realized that one of their songs ended up being used in that context. Uh, I was talking very recently to Pharrell, and, and one of his ideas with the new N.E.R.D. album, which is his producer um, alias, was he wanted it to be workout music. Okay. Uh, so he actually said, rather than as a traditional listening experience, he said, what I want people to do is work out to my music. How do I make that happen? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of perfect for streaming. And, and
1: does Pharrell just text you regularly? Is that how that happens, <laughs> or or does he
3: set up a phone call?
1: How uh, uh, how do you act as therapist to all of these stars?
3: I wouldn't say I'm, I'm a therapist, but like we we engage with this. Like this is this is the beautiful thing about my job is like I get to come in and I get to meet all these super smart people, and in some cases I get to come in and meet people who are my childhood heroes, <laughs> and I get to listen to what they want to create and share with the world. And I I wish that more of that stories ended up being told to a wider audience and that's what we're trying to promote is allowing artists to engage directly with their fans and tell their stories the way they want to tell them.
1: Now, speaking of childhood heroes, you've said in your own childhood, you got a guitar when you were four, Mm -hmm. you got a computer when you were five, but you weren't really surrounded by any entrepreneurial people or stimulation. What do you think would have changed in your life or in the development of Spotify if you'd had more inspiration and support of that sort of entrepreneurial nature from a young age?
3: I think, you know, if I'd had more role models, I probably would have uh, avoided making a lot of mistakes I made when I was younger. You know, the truth is, as a 14-year-old, I didn't even know that I was running a company. I thought I was doing cool shit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was it. That was the extent of what I thought I was doing. Did the tax office know you were running a company? Uh, (laughs) Barely. Uh, <laughs> which was one of the problems actually. I think the statute of limitations is yeah. passed um, so I mean I was doing this as a 14 year old and actually the first time that it hit me was there was a downturn in the economy and at the time the whole thing had been growing and I ended up having uh, over 40 employees and all of a sudden the one person who handled all the financial stuff that I gave it to that person said yeah we can't afford paying salaries uh, next month. And I said, what, what do you mean? We're doing great. It's like, no, we're not doing very well. Uh, so you have to go in and, uh, you have to tell people that you're not going to do that. And so how old were you at that point? I was probably 17. Um, and so I had to go in and lay off 20 people. Uh, and that's when I realized that this was for real. This wasn't just uh, cool doing some cool shit. This was people's livelihoods, but that lesson, I'm not sure anyone could have told me about that. Um, mm. The and that
1: was your money then? It wasn't some seed capital? No, no, that was and that and was my money.
3: Underlying. And But that experience uh, is part of the reason why I think it's so important for us to play a bigger role than just our own company and really be a positive force in the whole marketplace was that because we have a responsibility not just to myself or my employees but to in the case of spotify we have many millions of artists on our platform and in terms of european tech companies there's plenty too that are trying to follow in our footsteps so we have to take that responsibility very seriously and that's something we want to do um the only concern i have is just that the pace. like I I fundamentally view that we're now in a place where there's a more rapid pace of technological progress, Mm -hmm. which means that we have to move faster. So much of this is, from our point of view, I think the right things are being said, and I believe the right things are being done. But we have to move faster. And if we were to move faster, I think the whole of Europe's digital marketplace would be in a much better shape. So much of this is just like, can we find quicker things than the traditional tools of investigating?
1: Is it now time to run with the message that startups are Europe's future?
3: You know, I I actually fail to see really the distinction between the startups and the small and medium-sized businesses. I think it's people like myself that prefer being called startups (laughs) rather than just realizing that we're like any companies and any corporations. So I... I Is
1: is the startup label an excuse just not to grow up sometimes? I'm not speaking about Spotify now, but people love to say, oh, I'm a startup, I'm a startup, when actually maybe they're grown-ups who just don't have good management.
3: Yeah, I think so, Um, to be blatantly honest. I I think that's, uh, and and that's been evident as well in in some of the debates that's been going. I don't think it used to be that there was a tremendous amount of difference between digital companies and traditional ones. Mm But I think if you're running a traditional company today, you can be guaranteed that your business will be digital or is already or will become one. And that the people running those companies are thinking about it. So what is really the difference at this point? So I think startups could learn a lot from traditional companies. And I think traditional companies can learn a lot from startups Mm. or digital companies. And it's the intermix between the two, which is the future of these companies.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Those conversations are starting to happen. We saw all of this debate again at the Golden Globes around not just equality between the sexes, but how power is used, the the role that women have in our society. And I was reading how you have a young daughter as well. And given that tech can be such an imbalanced sector, I was wondering if do you have any sort of views or vision on what sort of tech world and wider world you want your daughter to grow up in, given that we're having all of these debates at the moment?
3: Yeah and I mean, I, I, first off, I will admit that, like many others, even having you know a child myself, and then more importantly, I have two daughters, it really has opened my eyes to how unfair the world is, just what they're encountering on an everyday basis. And so even as
1: young kids in Sweden.
3: Yeah, I mean it is stereotyping immediately, and um, you know I had my four-year-old ask me the other day. It's like, surely, Dad, I I'm not as strong as uh, the guys over there. And I said, why not? And she said, no, I'm a girl. And I said, who told you that? You could be stronger than all of them,
1: but you have to work. About, about twelve, it. she definitely is stronger. Yeah, that's for sure. I used to be a swimmer as a kid, and the girls always beat the boys until yeah. about twelve. Yeah.
3: No. In, in many cases, they're certainly smarter. So, uh, <laughs> that doesn't
1: stop at twelve; that just keeps going. <laughs> yeah,
3: no, but I mean, that's opened up my perspective on that, and I, I certainly will acknowledge that Spotify. We were not even on top of our game, so it's been a huge level of investment for me the last few years, and just understanding the issue more closely and and trying to impact it. And I think there's so much bullshit being used by people like me in terms of saying, "Oh, well, there's not enough female in technology, um, so we can't be gender balanced." It's bullshit. Uh, yes, it's if everyone tried to be gender balanced, it would be a problem. But but as for a company like Spotify, finding the talent and getting it, we could could be. Uh, it's just a function of how do we find them? How do we incentivize them? How do we create a level work environment where they feel like I want to be part of it? And we have a lot of more work to do. You know, We are looking at everything from removing gender, age from applications. The sad thing is it does have an impact. Yeah. Simple as that. We saw immediately a number of applicants going to the next stage by just doing that dropped off we do a lot of gender biases workshops that helps easy things like coloring in office does impact there's a lot of things and of course education as well Mm -hmm. there is real truth to that the stem education workforce don't have the same amount of uh, male-female ratio Mm -hmm. so there's a lot that needs to happen but fundamentally, this is why I think you know Spotify and other companies, we have a huge amount of responsibility in showcasing that, even in music alone. Mm-hmm. We're part of a project called Equalizer that, that highlights the fact that of the top 100 songs right now, only nine are written by females. Only nine.
1: And that's on what, the Billboard 100 chart? Billboard yeah. Top
3: 100 chart, yeah. Is that a fair world? No, it's not. So as a distinct goal, we are promoting female songwriters and we're working with Max Martin and many other superstar songwriters and producers to educate the next level, but also to even give them a shot to begin with. Mm -hmm. So those are all big things that we're doing. And I think we can accomplish real meaningful change and I've seen our numbers improve dramatically. But this isn't a thing you just turn uh, from one page to the next and you're dusted or put a checkbox in. It's active work for years. And that's what it will take and that's what we're committed to doing as well. Um, Personally, I I highly commend and support all the women that are coming forward with the stories and I'm appalled honestly at how widespread this is. And it gives me room to think and reflect on the fact that uh, we have a lot to do us men in what kind of work environments and the level of standards that we're setting for people.
1: I couldn't agree more. Maybe one final question. Have you got a resolution for 2018?
3: Uh, I don't actually. um, See the thing with me is like I think a year setting a resolution for a year is way too much time. Like, I set quarterly resolutions instead. What's your quarterly resolution? my quarterly resolution is I just entered into this insanely bizarre weight loss competition. Okay. Uh, Tell so, us more.
1: Yeah. So can we track you? Is there a granularity of data yeah. that we well, can follow, like on Spotify?
3: Well, well, part of the recommendation from that was that you should be like very public about what your goal is because other people will hold you accountable. So I guess this event will serve as a great like mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> basis for that. So my, my fiance has me on the same program. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're supposed to lose as much body fat as a uh, percentage of your body weight as possible, mm. and whoever wins. Ends up winning, mm-hmm. and I'm once okay. I've entered into a competition with someone I'm. Ah, very, so you you enter into it with one of
1: your friends. This is not yeah. like some online system. Uh, well, it's not online. Not Tinder weight loss.
3: It's, it's 30 people okay. um, in this particular competition. My problem is I'm insanely competitive, so I basically said to them, "You do realize that like either I'll die or I'll win." <laughs> That's like. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, we're drinking water here, by the way.
1: Exactly. And you're going shopping for some new clothes. That's your second resolution yes. in the second quarter. All right. Daniel Eck, thank you so much for joining us. You were listening to Daniel Eck, the CEO of Spotify. Now it's time for our regular podcast panel. And now it's time to welcome back our podcast panel, the Birthday Girl, Lena Rabaruz.
0: Good morning, Graham. Good morning, Alva.
1: And Alva Finn.
0: Hi, guys.
1: It's great to have you back. Now we've got three WTF moments this week. The first one, um, I was a little bit shocked to be honest, um, where baby Azel, who was born to Muslim parents in Vienna just after midnight on New Year's uh, morning, was the victim of online hate attacks. You know, a baby that you know essentially is still in the hospital is being attacked online as being a danger to Austria's future and something that should not be accepted or supported, and you know can become a, a target of a vitriol. What did you guys think when you read about that story?
0: I don't know if I'll let, I'll let Lena go first. <laughs> so it's enough of this um, hate speech, and uh, I mean, a baby who was born forty-seven minutes uh, into into the new year. ...to be called all these sorts of of names and and bad words, her and her parents. What sort of uh, of integration and what sort of uh, personality and psychology... ...this person would really uh, grow up in Europe? Is this a future European citizen just because they have a different religion? Is this the real integration? Now, we keep talking about this could be fixed by laws and by regulations... But we have another item now that we will talk about, which, again, is about racism. It's about time that the European governments come together and talk about the root of the problem. And it's not only about taking people to court. This is about social integration. This is about community movement. So,
1: so it's about discussions Inside, inside families, inside friendship networks, and
0: schools, calling and people out when system. you see someone
1: not doing the right thing.
0: Absolutely. I mean, we're seeing it in so many countries now in, in Europe, and we truly can't afford more than that. The, the society should talk together, the NGOs should to, talk together.
4: Alpha, it's is this something
0: upsetting. that
1: was always there, and now the digital world just brings it up to the surface? Or is it some new strain of hate that? comes as a result of things like the the refugee crisis from 2015.
4: Yeah I think it's a mixture of both of the things that you just said there. We have been hearing very worrying rhetoric which hark back to how Nazis treated uh, Jews and the other uh, groups that they persecuted in the past but I do also think that we need to be a bit cautious when you see some troll online saying stuff like that it's you know these kind of keyboard warriors it makes it much easier to say something when you don't have to say it to the face of the parents of this of this child and then also some of these trolls are paid by by people to do this from the alt right um, but I think we have been talking about this on the podcast for a long time. Uh, it's not just happening in Austria. It's happening elsewhere. We know that's happening in the UK. This kind of rhetoric of um, talking about migrants as rats, this kind of thing. But now we're actually extending it to babies. I think that's, that's very worrying to me. Um, yeah, and, and, But I do think there should be caution when we, when we see something like that online. Is it really showing what people would really say in real life? I don't think it really is.
1: And now for our second moment of the week. And uh, a big shout out to all of David Davis's team who are listening to the podcast. But guys, what on earth were you thinking when you let him sign this letter to Theresa May that was essentially previewing the possibility of a legal challenge because the EU was daring to talk about the possibility of a no-deal scenario around Brexit? And one of the quotes from this letter was... Some EU agencies have published guidance to business outlining that the UK will become a third country when we stop being a member state in March 2019, but with no reference to the possible alternative arrangements that might be agreed as part of the implementation period, end quote. Well, I mean, guys, you're the ones who are leaving. Like, it's really obvious that you're leaving at this point, and there's no precedent for it, so everyone is stumbling around in the dark a little bit here, but... Is it really weird that the EU would write to the people that it deals with to warn them that a big change is coming and that they need to get ready for a range of possible scenarios? I mean, it's pretty no, obvious, it's isn't it? It's a bit
4: Captain Obvious. That's what I thought when I read it. I was thinking, oh, well done for stating the obvious. Um, I think probably the, where the worry is coming from is that there was a line, uh, at least in this letter, I haven't seen the, the guidance that that the Commission is sending to, to these business entities, but that... In the future, they might like to start thinking about setting up EU entities if they want to stay uh, trading in the single market. Um, So So the EU is
1: trying to cream off some stuff and leave the British in the dust.
4: I mean, obviously, they should be seeing that as a threat. The fear always was that how this negotiation was going to work is that the EU is going to try and put Britain in a worse situation than they would have been as a member state, because then it will lead to a mass exodus of all the other member states leaving because they don't see the benefit. I mean, that is what I would see from from the, these guidances that they're sending out is is that scenario. However, sending this letter to the Prime Minister of his own <laughs> country is a bit odd.
0: Like, she she knows this, no? It's interesting because just a few weeks ago, we had the article by Boris Johnson, then the interview by Mr. Davis, then now again this letter by him. So it's like they are in a continuous um, uh, mesmerized moment, uh, you know. It's like what? waking up from, oh, am I dreaming? I'm going to give am David really Davis dreaming? some is it credit. True?
1: He's always in the weird category. Boris Johnson is in the crazy
0: category.
1: I'm really not trying to suggest he has a mental illness. I just mean he is... Off the charts, Albert. <laughs> Whereas David Davis, you're just kind of alert. like, really?
0: Did that happen? happen yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like it's the first first time they heard. Okay, we're leaving, and uh, it just tells you how much they really don't know. They have no clue on what's coming up, and they are still not envisioning the 700 agreements that they need to negotiate with the with, with the EU. It, well, it's, I, it's I tell really you what is coming sad up. Sad and funny. And I I reached a point like I'm not shocked anymore, really.
1: (laughs) Well, okay. I've just said it three times already in this podcast, but I was shocked about this one. (laughs) It's a new study by Ghent University um, commissioned by the Brussels regional government, uh, which found that 88 percent of women in Brussels have been victims of sexual harassment, as described by um, those victims themselves. And that shocked me a little bit because I know that street harassment or harassment on public transport is a really big problem. We've obviously talked about the issues inside workplaces and so on as well. But I think that I I always understood the experience to be very varied according to where you were operating, possibly according to do you understand you're being harassed. Brussels is a very multilingual city. But I probably didn't imagine that nine out of 10 women would say they had been harassed. I'm going to hand it over to the women now.
4: I did, because I've been harassed so many times on the streets of Brussels. I'm sure all the women listening who live in Brussels will be familiar with this sound. which is the sound that some men make behind you when they're trying to harass you on the street. It is really annoying. I actually have moved out of certain areas because I well, I felt very threatened by it. One day, even, I was followed by three men, three separate men, on the same exact day and I've already talked about that experience that I had in the airport in Brussels so this does not shock me whatsoever it is very high I've lived in a number of other cities and I can only say the amount of harassment I have received here is not exactly the same but quite similar to the the experience that I had when I lived in Cairo which actually has like up through the roof levels of harassment famously
0: Absolutely, yeah. No, I um, I didn't experience anything so far. But this study is very enlightening that uh, maybe they should start campaigning, educating the public if it's part of the uh, public transportation or in common areas. And Well,
1: we have so many instructions on public transport about what you yeah. shouldn't do. Don't run for the doors when they're beeping. Don't uh, jam through the, the electronic gates, etc. But I've never seen an anti-harassment.
0: See. No, no, nev- I've never seen it. I've seen it in other European uh, cities, but I've never seen it in Brussels and it's a good indicator and if uh, any mayor running for some elections it would be really a key uh, element to to add to their campaign
1: Now, we also had some news out this morning that a group of uh, famous French women including Catherine Deneuve, the actress have written to defend the right of men to hit on women I don't want to get into too much of a debate about where is um, the line between hitting on someone and harassing someone but what was your reaction to that? As the people who may have been hit on by men in the past.
4: Yeah, I thought to myself when she said this, you know, she is from this era of French actresses who made careers out of this kind of flirtation and maybe um, rebuffing advances in a very gentle way. Even the wording of it is very interesting. Men have been punished summa- summarily. Who exactly is that, sorry? Forced out of their jobs. Exact- again, Who who is that? Harvey Weinstein, who is actually sex- yeah, sexually I don't know harassing any innocent and assaulting people, allegedly. allegedly. Uh, when all they did was touch someone's knee or try to steal a kiss. Now, I think this is going to be a generational divide. There should be no more stealing of kisses. There should be giving of kisses to other people (laughs) consensually. And I think that's, that's the difference. I do think it's a generational divide here. There is a clear difference to me between harassing someone and flirting. Once someone says to you that they do not want or you feel that they feel uncomfortable, you should then stop.
1: And does that leave space for this so-called French art of seduction? I mean, there's been whole books written about this idea of the ways in which men are supposed to pursue women. It's always done in a hetero way. <laughs> I've never read any books about how gay guys are supposed to seduce each other, but uh, go on there.
0: But, you know, she's la marienne. I mean, how disappointing and and sad for a symbol of beauty that she would come out while her colleagues in, in Hollywood and in the U.S. and all parts of the world, even in in, in America Latina, um, they're standing up. It's, I don't think it's a generational gap because there are even older actresses that they stood up last week in the Golden Globe and they called to stop that. The art of seduction, the tradition of seduc- seduction of the French, she is, I think, really confusing the sort of being romantic with your approval when you like someone and when being harassed. And if there's a confusion at this age uh, for La Marienne, uh, tant pis pour elle, absolutely.
1: And now on a slightly sad note, but one that we can bring to you with fondness, and that is in memory of Peter Sutherland, who died this week. He was a great statesman at home in Ireland, and let's face it, in Europe and globally. Alva, what are your memories of him as someone growing up in Ireland?
4: Yeah, I studied law in Ireland, so he's quite a famous figure because he was our Attorney General. And he is quite well known uh, in that regard because he took on the Catholic Church when we decided to put a law against abortion into our constitution and he said this is going to cause confusion which he was dead right it did but then after that he went to, on to an illustrious career i think one newspaper recently uh, described it as you know the must-have cv the best cv in the world basically he was an eu commissioner the competition commissioner in in the early days uh, when ireland joined then after that he went on to be the head of the gat which then turned into the World Trade Organization. And he had other, maybe less well-thought-of positions as the chairman of Goldman Sachs and also key roles in British Petroleum. But he was very dedicated to the EU, to globalization and and
0: to free trade. And one of the most incredible landmarks he has left behind him is the Erasmus Programme which I have been fortunate enough to be the fifth person to to benefit from that in my country well, and it's I one didn't know that. Yeah, yeah and it's one of the the really best programs that Europe uh, has started and uh, will continue I hope it it built lots of bridges it inspired so many students uh, so many young people to look up to Europe and to reach out and to build more of consensus and bridging the cultures so I, I really hope that they can uh, put his name next to the Erasmus program in in sort of commemorating him why not uh, we have marie
1: uh, curie is on one of the yep. subsets of the program. Really Maybe you could idea. have Peter Sutherland there mm-hmm. as well. And two other things people uh, sometimes forget or didn't know he liberalized aviation in Europe. So all of those Ryanairs, mm-hmm. EasyJets, those other companies, with Air now in Central and Eastern Europe, those companies were all made possible by him breaking that stronghold that those national flag carriers had and doing it through EU law. And the way I remember Peter Sutherland is that he was always in the action of the movement. And that was true right up to the last, where his last role was actually in advocating for refugees um, and relating to this huge wave of forced migration that we're seeing around the world right now. So he really did have the, the CV to, to end all CVs. Mm. So here's to you, Peter Sutherland that's all we've got time for on this episode of eu confidential thanks so much for listening and if you've got a minute take the chance to rate or review us wherever you found the podcast and subscribe as well so you don't have to look for each new episode it will come to you in your inbox or onto your smartphone and thanks as always to the people who make the eu confidential possible that's andrew gray cynthia crowett Wei ling and antonio
4: fernandez